So I am here with Heather, and I just learned how to correctly say your company. Um, I've been saying Sanofi this whole time, but it is, that is not correct. It's Sanofi. With the French, the French accent, of course. Yeah, um, which is a much, much more sophisticated way of saying it. Um, so we're going to dive in, in on some topics that I think mean a lot to this particular room uh, related to digital health. And that's a space that you follow closely. So I'm just going to dive right in by asking you, digital health, is it more hype or substance? Well, I think you look around the room, I think we've reached critical mass. I think this is a market reality these days. I do think, though, that there's, I mean, in this whole tech-enabled health space, you do get a lot of people with very big ideas and very whizzy technology who have not necessarily thought through the practicalities of how you actually put this into real-life healthcare systems and real-life people. <laughs> and real-life yeah. big global companies who may not be used to working this way. So this is something we grapple with every day. So is this part of your job, just telling digital health entrepreneurs that maybe they need to sort of rethink uh, the snazzy technology that they've come up with? Yeah. Honestly, I mean, part of my job, it's actually, I, I get this two ways. I get this externally and I get it internally, right? So you sit with the entrepreneur and you say, I love the technology. Have you thought through the workflow in the actual healthcare system? Have you thought through the incentives for a busy doctor or to use this or a tired patient to engage with this day after day? And often people haven't, I mean, understandably, right? Because they've come up with their technical innovation, but they have not thought through the complexity of that workflow. Indeed, they may not even have a healthcare background. And in my big company, right, more than 100,000 people, more than 100 countries, people who are used to doing things in a particular way, they'll say, ooh, you know, I went to this talk. I went to this talk and I saw this technology and it seemed to be from the future and I want that in 50 countries tomorrow. And you're like, fantastic. You know, can we get practical about what problem we're actually trying to solve, whether or not people will use this, whether or not we're set up operationally to make this happen. Yep, I've seen that too. I mean, I'm, I'm still waiting for the Star, Star Trek style tricorder that <laughs> actually seems to work. Um, so what do you think is the right team that you tend to see kind of have a more sophisticated, smart attitude about digital health? Do you have to have a doctor on your team? Do you need to have someone from the pharmaceutical industry on board? Or is it enough to just advise with these people on the regular? That's a really interesting thing. Um, you know, I don't think you can be algorithmic about this. I think it depends on what you're doing. But like one of the big priorities for us, right, we use digital in two ways. We use it to try to make better drugs faster and cheaper, mm -hmm. get them to patients more quickly. And we use digital to try to pursue entirely new business models. How could we create new patient services and improve new patient outcomes? If you're, so in the first category, if what you're trying to do is take years off clinical trials, like, yes, it's good to start with a blank sheet of paper and think about what the future might look like, but you need some hardcore people who have developed drugs, come up with clinical development strategies, who have run clinical operations, who understand the regulation you're dealing with, if you are really going to get into that space, I think. You know, in other areas like let's um, talk about digital therapeutics or what we might call drugs plus solutions. So the hardware software service you yeah. wrap around a drug. I was just going to say, what is a digital therapy? Yeah, well, um, 
We have the executive director of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance in the building. I do, yeah, waving at the back, so she'd be delighted to give the, you know, the specific definition. I mean, for us, um, and you know, I'm going to embarrass myself by having forgotten the DTA's precise definition on this because they have one. But you know, we think of it as hardware software service that produces a demonstrable clinical effect, right? So if you're doing something like that, I think it helps to have physicians in the room or at least a strong clinical sensibility. But the other thing that we find is, you know, you really have to think very hard about the patient perspective. We spend the first, so we have a digital medicines team, right? They are working on developing solutions like this. We're launching one on atopic dermatitis disease management in 20 countries literally this month. But the first part of any innovation process with that team is spending real time with patients and with disease experts to say what is the problem that we are actually trying to solve. And it sounds so trivial, right? It sounds like something on Heather's flowchart, right? You know, innovation process step one, you know, define problem you're trying to solve. But you would be surprised the number of times, right, where people barrel in with a, I saw this app, or you can use the imaging in this particular way, and that's fantastic. But let's actually talk to the patients about what their issues are with atopic dermatitis. And it turns out that it's the itchiness. It turns out that it's the sleep deprivation. It turns out that it's a set of things that might not be at the top of the clinician's mind, but is hugely relevant to the quality of life for the patient. And there, like what you want is the behavioral scientist or the anthropologist or the fantastic designer. So I really think you need you know, great cross-functional teams with a diversity of talent if you're going to bring great solutions to life. So I definitely want to come back to the patient perspective because I think that's something that's very often overlooked in yep. a lot of these conversations at conferences like JP Morgan. Um, but let's, let's talk about digital therapeutics first mm -hmm. um, because you mentioned that this is an area that you, you're passionate about. It's something that I've looked into in my own reporting. And one of the things I've grappled with is, is, is this a threat to pharma or is this something where you want to partner and collaborate? Because the whole idea behind it, um, you know, the, the pill replacement strategy that some of these companies talk about, um, wouldn't that be something that would be competitive to a company that, you know, its business model is to sell pharmaceuticals? Pill drugs, yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting question and it's a, a live topic of conversation with a lot of the digital therapeutics companies that we encounter. And interestingly, many of them say to us that even when they have something that they think could be substitutional, they're really interested in partnering with pharmaceutical companies because we understand the regulatory pathways and we understand how you get this, how you influence doctors, how you educate doctors, and how you get this in the hands of patients. So our experience so far has been kind of synergistic and reinforcing. And I think you see that in some of the deal transactions, right? Pair Therapeutics, who, you know, got a lot of headlines last year with their approval for Reset O for substance um, use disorder. You know, they're partnered with Novartis. Mm -hmm. um, now, if we all thought this was Ma well, I suppose if we thought it was massive threat, we might go around buying up all of the companies too, you know, in order to bring them in-house. Which is starting to happen. There have been which a few is, deals. Which is starting to happen as well. Um, I think you find in the digital therapeutic space, frankly, a spectrum of types of solutions. A lot of these things are very nicely used in conjunction with a chemical or a biological therapeutic, right? So we have titration 
algorithm solutions for diabetics who are using insulin. So we work with Voluntis out of um, France. In fact, we have a solution there that is reimbursed by the French government, you know, nationally in order to support diabetics in their dosing, you know, all the way through to things that can be prescribed independently, like, uh, like Reset O. Um, I, you know, I think I'm also interested in the class of what you might call digital therapeutics or um, predictive algorithms that can be used agnostic to any drug to help patients um, with particular diseases. So Sivan um, company out of France and Israel have, I believe, um, have a solution called MoveCare, um, which is essentially a very simple questionnaire to, that is administered to patients with lung cancer, you know, tracking fatigue, appetite, out of breath, etc. Um, and what they found is that patients who use that, data goes to physician, um, you know, they, their overall survival is increased versus patients who are not using that. And I should say, I'm just a fan of this company. I, like, we don't have a relationship with them. Right? But it, there's also been other studies, and this was big news at ASCO, the big oncology meeting 18 mm -hmm. months ago, where people said, look, you look at some of these effects in terms of extending overall survival. If it were a drug, you would put, you would say this breakthrough in cancer treatment, and you would put a very big price tag on it. Um, and you now, is that substitutional on a drug? Absolutely not, right? It's something you put in complement to, you know, the chemotherapy, uh, IO, um, and radiation therapies that people are on. Can you think of any examples of where we could replace drugs entirely with a digital-only solution that, say, encouraged behavior change, or at least tried that ahead of a prescription for a drug, um, which, you know, you and I both know that when we go to the doctor, we very often get a prescription rather than um, some advice around things that we could be doing um, to, to sort of get, improve our health. <coughs> and that there, might work just I, as well. No, absolutely. I think there are two places that are interesting on this. I think one of them is around um, uh, weight loss and obesity and, in effect, pre-diabetes. So um, Omada Health and their solutions and you, around... you guys are invested in Omada? We are invested in them, um, indeed. Um, you know, and, and what they have is an, an integrated solution to coach people to the 5 to 10% of weight loss that will prevent the onset of diabetes. So that's exactly on a, you know, on a disease pathway. That's exactly the early intervention that you're looking for. Um, you know, another place where there's a lot of promise on this is in the neuroscience space, right, where there is a you know, a lot of behavior and a lot of ability to retrain, I mean, some companies would argue, right, to retrain your, your pathways. And, you know, the results that Achilles has in attention deficit disorder are really quite interesting. But, of course, if you want to be, you know, substitutional, um, high hurdle of proof. I see. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, if you're going to say, if you are going to convince a set of clinicians that, you know, really what you should be doing for your patients is putting them on this app, which of course is You've foreign got a modality. Yeah. yeah, you need to, like, as opposed to this chemical or biological drug that you may know a lot more about and may have been trained to, you know, think of as the go-to solution. I think you need to run the studies and you need to run the studies at scale. 
So clinical trials, um, there is a lot wrong with them. Um, for starters, we, we definitely do not Thank recruit you. a diverse population. We don't have a great sense of how these drugs are performing in the real world. Um, what do you think is realistically going to change in the next five to 10 years about the way that we do clinical studies as, uh, in terms of the top pharma companies? Like, what is, what's gonna happen? So I think, um, what's gonna happen, my crystal ball? This is a big area of focus for us. We spend years in clinical development and we spend a lot of money. And, you know, much of that's justified in the sense that, you know, we are testing novel compounds before we get them to the market, you need to know that they are safe and efficacious, right? You, you do not take risks with people's health. Um, but we've analyzed, you know, all the time that we spend in clinical development outside the actual protocol, right? 35 to 40% of the time that you spend in clinical development is actually recruiting patients. 70% of trials experience delays across the industry because it's tough to recruit patients. And then we know that often we're not you know, recruiting as diverse populations as we'd like. So what are we gonna see? Well, we already see big efforts to try to recruit patients through other channels. So we're Social media is one of them? Um, in fact, you know, online, right? Like, I mean, it's fascinating. I live in Boston. Anybody live in Boston in the room? Thank you, Boston people. Don't be shy. <laughs> half of Boston seem to be on the plane out with me. Um, uh, you take the subway and you see it's plastered with come participate in our clinical study, right? Like that's the recruitment mechanism. It's 2019 and we're recruiting people like on the subway. But we know that like 1.4 billion daily active users are spending on average 50, even now after data privacy, whatever, 50, that's five zero minutes a day on Facebook and their other properties. You think we might put these two things together. So, you know, we're recruiting patients online in 16 countries at the moment, which I have to say is one of the, like, the things I'm really proud of my team for, because to deal with data privacy and medical convention and ethics committees in 16 different countries around the world, developed emerging markets, like is a big thing. So we're doing that. We're you know, using artificial intelligence to look at electronic health records. We're thinking about how you bring the study to the patient rather than making the patient go to the clinical site. You work full time, you're in education full time, you have to go every two weeks to, you know, drive an hour and a half. It's insane. He would do well, that. It's insane, right? And then if you live, you know, in a rural area or in a remote, I grew up in Canada, remote part of Canada, right? I mean, how do you even, how do you get access to these things? So thinking about how you fix that access equation. I think the other thing that we're really, um, a couple of other things that we're looking to do. You know, one is to see how you can use real-world evidence to prove, um, to gather evidence. I mean, exactly as you say, you have this difference between what you see in a clinical trial, a very controlled protocol-driven setting, and what you see in the actual real world. Now, of course, when you've got novel drugs, like you really do need to test them, um, you know, in the randomized double-blind setting. But in observational studies post-launch, in phase four studies, are there ways of doing real-world evidence studies um, that can help accelerate, uh, accelerate evidence generation? And so that you really understand how these drugs are working in the real world. Final thing, sorry, I'm very boring on clinical trials. Um, I just think wearable technology. I was just going to ask about wearables. Well, it <laughs> read my mind. Clairvoyance. Um, you know, this is one of the ways that you can bring 
the study to the patient, right? If I can measure things in a home setting that I don't have to go into a clinical setting and have specialized large equipment or a trained medical professional do the measurement. If I have continuous data gathering rather than once every fortnight gathering, then I can collect more data, potentially reduce my sample size, so I get my trial done more quickly. And maybe I can um, discover new digital endpoints or use new digital endpoints um, that actually focus on some of the things that may be most relevant to the patients. And we've got, we've um, in the past year really launched a significant set of work in this area. And we had a meeting before Christmas with the FDA on one of the digital endpoints we're working on that was, I mean, terrific. And, and you know, we found a real openness for, for this discussion. So that was very exciting. I do want to come back to privacy, though, because that, that has been the topic of the year, and, and we can't escape it. People suddenly now, um, more than ever, so thinking so much about, you know, I'm, I'm using sites like Facebook, and what am I giving up? Mm -hmm. um, so how do you think about that as a, as a company that obviously you could do a lot of work on Facebook? I mean, there's so many groups out there now for patients yep. to meet and interact. Um, but at the same time, you know, do you see um, them reacting negatively to a pharmaceutical company reaching out to them? And of course, there are regulations around that as well. Um, so where do you see as kind of the limit in terms of, you know, what is, what is too much engagement um, from a pharma company on, the, on this front? Um, well, the global evidence on clinical trials is that when you ask patient groups, like in active social media communities like my, my health teams, right, when you ask them, would you be interested in participating in clinical trials that were set up for people like you, the majority say yes. And then they say to you, and then you think, well, why do we have this recruitment problem? And the answer is people aren't aware. And the, the geography, geographical proximity to the site becomes a problem. Um, it is true, so we don't get, we, I mean, a couple of things. Um, there are some channels online that work better than others that people trust more than what, others, what as you well. might Im imagine. I mean, Facebook works well. It turns, like, in spite of all of the issues, Facebook works well. Um, uh, so we, you know, the other thing is, although I understand there are reputational issues around pharmaceutical companies, we're amongst the most heavily regulated and kind of externally and internally by guidelines, compliance, practice codes of ethics on how we handle patient data, right? So my team that is running online recruitment campaigns, those are being run for us by external parties. We never see identified patient data. We can't, right? So the third party is doing that for us. Um, you know, and that's particularly important as you lead into a trial environment, right, where it's very, you know, where again, you know, we never see identified patient data. So you are right, there are, there are, there are lots of trust issues here, and I'm personally like um, a total civil libertarian privacy kind of nut. I don't want anybody to know anything about my personal data sort of thing, thank you. <laughs> There's at least two of us in the room. Um, uh, so I, t like I take this personally very seriously, but we have to, as an industry, take you know, and I, f and I fear backlash. Um, but as, an, as a company and as an industry, we take it incredibly seriously. And of course, you know, we're a European headquartered company. 
Um, and so GDPR, the new data regulations in Europe, you know, affect us there and affect us and the companies we work with globally. Um, so, you know, I, I, we talk actively about where the social contract is on this mm -hmm. in different countries around the world, but um, it's something that we're pretty well set up for internally. So I, I do want to ask another Facebook-related question, which is, you know, you see them talking now in research studies and at conferences about the social determinants of health, which is yeah. a term I've probably heard a hundred times already at this conference. Um, do you think there is a role for a, a pharma company to say, you know, in, this, in the interests of this real-world evidence that we're collecting, in the interests of looking outside of just what a patient is doing on site at a clinical trial, mm -hmm. could you say, look at Facebook to figure out, does this patient have a social support network? Are they lonely? Do they have a yeah, community um, to support them? I mean, you would have to do it with consent. Right? All of these things, on our view, would need to be consented. So we run real-world evidence studies, um, both using electronic health record data and claims data. We work with Evidation Health, who are headquartered, and invest in them. Um, and they're a company that has done really interesting work in trying to put together um, behavioral data, activity data, attitudinal data, um, to really understand triggers of disease, to understand um, what drives, for example, um, somebody to be vaccinated for flu or not, right? I mean, we're one of the largest producers of vaccines in the world, right? So these things are highly relevant. And it's amazing, even given the clinical evidence, that you don't have in some you know, disease categories, you don't have 100% adoption of vaccination rates. So, you, I mean, you should absolutely, I mean, there's great scope, I think, to understand the full picture of people's activity, but you have to consent that. You can't go web crawling anonymously mm. on them. Like, it's yeah. just not appropriate. <laughs> so you mentioned vaccines. Um, and, you know, this is something that I think the media has had a hard time covering um, with this sort of idea that we have to show balance. But when you have an issue that's, you know, 99% of scientists think one thing and maybe one scientist thinks another, then, you know, showing, 50, giving 50% airtime to yeah. both those sides um, is certainly, like, problematic. Um, and, you know, you also, I think on the, on the side of kind of pop science, um, where you see, you know, people who don't believe in vaccines and um, sites like Goop and, and others, these people are amazing at marketing. You see them on social media. But on the flip side, you know, the scientific community, the pharmaceutical community, you don't see to quite the same extent getting out there and speaking to people in their own language. Yeah. Um, as a kind of executive in this world, do you think that scientists and the community need to do a better job of really getting out there and, and educating the public? Yes. <laughs> in a word, right? Like, I just think vaccines are, you know, the basic, va I, you know, I have a, my children attend a liberal school in, um, uh, in Boston and occasionally, you know, will come home saying, oh, new person in school who, you know, talked about not being vaccinated, right? And my, well, my hair, as my mother would Does say, curls. <laughs> as it, well, you know, like my hair's really straight, but my hair curls in that moment, right? Um, because the evidence is so clear. Um, and I, uh, you know, and there are people around the world who would kill to be able to 
um, you know, have the kind of protection that we have. And there are a set of diseases that we would love to be able to protect people against. And we have these tools, and it is remarkable to me that we are not using them. Oh, I mean, in, to be clear, you know, in some case, flu season year to year, we don't always, you know, cover 100%. But yes, we need to do a better job. I'm like, I'm not being eloquent, but <laughs> yes, in a word, we need to do so a better sci job. So scientists need more of a voice. Um, you know, we're at the JP Morgan conference where it's basically just white guys in suits everywhere, everywhere you look. Um, I'm starting to see more women speak. I'm excited that I have, you know, 100% women, women on health. the stage. Um, we're pretty jazzed. Yeah. And our next speaker, also a woman. Um, That's outstanding. So, you know, what needs to happen to get more women into executive roles, into board seats? I actually have heard that, that farm is a little bit of an exception and that there are quite a large number of executives compared to other areas of healthcare. A lot of women I've seen in, in pharma venture as well. Yep. Um, so what do we need to do differently to change this? Um, I think we need to be aware of our unconscious bias and how that, our unconscious bias and how that affects our interactions literally every day. I think we need to get role models in place and my experience is diverse teams hire diverse teams. Majority of my hires into my new team, I've built one, a new team, um, are women. They include a deaf woman whose professional life is made possible by the technologies that we're talking about day to day. I can tell you that gives you a different view of like the patient experience and what technology can really mean to your existence. I think, I mean, and I grew up in Canada. I spent 20 years in the UK. I think- um, Yeah, UK. Yeah, UK. <laughs> um, you know, maternity leave, childcare, and support for caring roles, which still disproportionately fall on women, I think is also incredibly uh, important. And I think, I think you have to um, be explicit about the targets, and we as a company have targets around gender parity at different levels in the company. You know, in a certain time frame, but I think you also have to influence the inputs. I think you have to sit, you know, before you agree to do a panel and say, is this, you we know. We don't do manals. We don't do manals. I think you have to sit in, in, in recruitment meetings and say, uh, where are the women candidates? I think you have to be very intentional. Are you a mentor to any, any women in the space? I am. You know, I find I'm conflicted about mentoring. My mentoring relationships work best when I have worked with somebody. When we have a shared experience and we have something that we can talk about systematically. The, you come from a totally different universe to me unless I have an explicit learning agenda around that. I eventually run out of ability to be useful. Got it. And with that note, we are actually out of time. Um, it flew by, so thank you so much, Heather, for this conversation. And, um, thank you. Yeah, this was wonderful. Have a good day. Thanks so much.